0: Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own.
1: Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado
0: and Riley Risto.
1: Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I am your co-host, Christopher Hurtado. With me is my co-host, Riley Risto. Hi, Chris. And today we're joined by a special guest, Sahar Khumsia, author of Peace for a Palestinian. I met Sahar when I was working with More Good Foundation and meeting Arab saints, Arab Latter-day Saints, uh, so that we could work together in doing some things in Arabic on the internet. And I've also, I think I've run into you, Sahar, when we've been, uh, not when we have been, I have been invited to to interpret for conference, but I have declined, but you have done it, right? Yes. And I've met with you and other interpreters for meals you know, between sessions or after sessions, at least once or twice. I think I've seen you there too. Welcome, Sahar. Thank you. Thank you for being with us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Sahar, I would love for you to just start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, your story.
2: Okay. Yeah. I am a Palestinian Arab. I was born in Jerusalem, and I grew up in a town called Beit Sahur, which is right next to Bethlehem. I grew up basically under israeli occupation and my life was very difficult living in palestine i saw demonstrations when i went to bethlehem university i was kind of a freshman when We had a demonstration there and one of the students was killed and we had a big problem there and the university was closed for two years. So after graduating from Bethlehem University, I went to get a master's degree at Brigham Young University. And I was introduced to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I joined the church there and went back home to Palestine. I later on went to get a Ph.D. in Turkey. And after my PhD, I worked for a little bit in Palestine with the United Nations. After that, I got a job at Righam Young University, Idaho. And that's where I live right now.
1: Sahar, you saw this classmate that you mentioned killed, right? Yes. He died. Not, not on the spot, but he, he was not able to go to the hospital right away. He was not allowed to go and eventually killed. How did that affect you in your life?
2: I was 16 at the time and I wasn't really involved in politics and I didn't really know much about what was going on. Actually, when I saw my classmates demonstrating, I'm like, well, why are they doing that? I couldn't really understand then. I mean, even though I knew we were living under Israeli occupation and I'd seen demonstrations, I just wasn't really understanding the full reasons. But that day when that student was shot in the head for no reason. He was hanging a Palestinian flag, and that's when the Israeli soldier shot him in the head. Watching him die and the soldiers not allowing him to be taken to a hospital shocked me. Later on, after many interventions from the mayor of the town and other people, the soldiers actually allowed that student to be taken out, but they took his body at midnight that night Brought his body back to his family and only allowed the mother and father to follow them. And they took that body to a really far away field and dug a hole and threw the body inside and covered it with rocks. At 16, I couldn't understand why a human being would do that. Like I considered that inhumane and unjust. That day, I came to realize first that maybe our lives didn't matter or maybe we were nobody, we didn't have any rights. And number two is that the occupation was not fair and not just and and doing horrible things to my people, and that's why they were demonstrating. So I developed the hate in my heart for the soldiers, and I couldn't shake it. I actually just kept imagining the picture of that student, Isaac, in front of me with the hole in his head and me having to watch him die, and it was really hard.
1: I know what that's like, you know, to hate, at least, for a different reason, but... It can be all-consuming. Sahar, you grew up Christian. This is something, I, I don't know if our listeners realize, you know, that there are Palestinian Christians. You converted from Christianity to Christianity, right? You were not a Muslim, right? You came from another Christian tradition. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah,
2: my family is Greek Orthodox. Actually, my mom was Lutheran, but then she, when she married my dad, we were part of the Greek Orthodox Church. I live in Beit and Beit is actually one of the Christian towns. Bethlehem has a lot of Christians, but Beit mainly has about 80% that are Christian. I grew up with Muslims. I had friends that were Muslim. I went to school with Muslims, and, you know, I love and honor my Muslim friends. A lot of people think that maybe we don't get along or something, but we do live together. We live in the same city and you know you can't even tell us apart. We're, we're all the same. We all love each other. I think it's tradition for most people. You know, you you kind of are part of a religion because your family is part of that religion. I mean I was Greek Orthodox because my family was Greek Orthodox and a lot of people don't convert from one religion to the other. It's kind of rare. So when I joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, my family didn't accept that very well, even though it was another Christian denomination, they didn't accept it. So they tried to get me to leave the church and go back to our faith. They kept saying that I was betraying my faith or my heritage.
1: And for you, I, I imagine if you were go, if you had stayed with that tradition, it would have been a lot easier to go to church uh, on the day that you meet for church, right? Tell us about what it was like to go to church for you when you had to go from where you live to Jerusalem and the difficulties that are involved for Palestinians, any Palestinian who wants to move around in those parts.
2: We have many Greek Orthodox churches in, in Bethlehem area and Sahore, we have Lutheran churches, Catholic. but the only LDS church was at the time. This was in 1996. The only LDS church was at the BYU Jerusalem Center. That's where church services was held. This was the only church in the entire country that I could go to to basically worship using this new faith that I've just learned and went back home to find that I was the only member of the church in my entire region and the church was in Jerusalem. Technically, Bethlehem and Jerusalem are kind of close. It's like seven miles, but Palestinians are not allowed into Jerusalem. Palestinians that live in the West Bank mainly are not allowed into Jerusalem. So I found myself far from this church that I wanted to go to and partake of the sacrament and worship God. I did not like that because finding the gospel brought me peace and joy and I didn't want to leave it. I wanted to go to church. So I started to sneak in to get to church. At the beginning, it wasn't very difficult because I would climb a hill to avoid the Israeli checkpoints. So I managed to get there, you know, just by walking a few minutes to avoid the Israeli checkpoint. But then soldiers were placed on the hill. I had to take a long back road. And then in the year 2001 or so, Israel built a massive separation wall that was where they started to build it. It took years. It's still not complete. But the separation wall is about 25 feet of concrete. You can't climb it. You can't avoid it. And it doesn't just go around cities. It also, like in Bethlehem, if you go into the city, it goes around the city, taking houses and taking land. So I found it really difficult to get to church. I would have to Find different ways. Every Sabbath was its own adventure because sometimes I would have to go for an hour and a half to go through a hole. Sometimes you would have to climb hills and muddy roads. And sometimes you hide from soldiers. I was shot at sometimes and chased. And it was very difficult. The journey would take three hours most of the time. But I did it week after week. Now, sometimes I didn't make it, but sometimes I did. And for 12 years, I did my best to get to the Jerusalem center and worship and partake of the sacrament.
1: For listeners who are having trouble getting to church on time early in the morning, (laughs) take heart. (laughs) It could be worse. Now, this is in Palestine where the modern state of Israel is occupying. How do we distinguish then between, is this Israel? Is it Palestine? Is is Israeli means the same thing as Israelite? Let's set the record straight for the listener on this.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people can misunderstand what's going on there. And a lot of people side with Israel just because they called themselves Israel. And because, you know, people confuse that with the Israel in the Bible, which really, they're not the same thing. They're completely two different things. Maybe I want to just briefly explain what happened there because i think there is a lot of confusion and i think i see that especially in the us because the media is biased and sometimes they don't show the entire picture basically what happened is my country palestine used to exist years ago and it was occupied by israel so basically that happened in two stages in 1948 The Jews were being persecuted in Europe, and so the UN kind of came up with a partition plan and said, let's make a home for the Jews. The Palestinians that were there, we did have Jewish neighbors living with us in Palestine, and we were welcoming to the Jews that were being persecuted. But the people that came in didn't come in peace. They took lands, basically massacred entire cities, which my mom told me about. A friend of hers that was living in one of the villages there. And when the Jews came in, they actually killed everybody in the town and they killed her friend and all of the children that she was teaching at the time because she was a teacher. But basically, it created two states at the time. We had the Gaza Strip and the West Bank were left as Palestine, but the rest of the country was taken and called Israel. When Israel kind of celebrates the establishment of their state. The Palestinians call that day the Nakba because that day is the day where we lost half of our country. And then in 1967, Israel, during the Six-Day War, occupied the rest of Palestine. And so then the whole state of Israel was created. The Palestinians that are there, all of a sudden, we found ourselves homeless We lived in Palestine, but it wasn't Palestine anymore, so we really have no nationality. We didn't have any rights living in Israel. And I think for a lot of people, it's really hard to understand that. I mean, if you imagine that a certain country comes and all of a sudden occupies the entire US and then gives you 8% of the country and says, you can only live here. You can't live on the rest of your country. You can only live in this 8%. And by the way, we're going to create walls around this 8% land that, that we're giving to you. And we're being nice to you that we're giving you 8% of your land. A lot of people look at the Israelis and say that they're being nice and fair. But in fact, you know, they, they took the whole thing. And as a Palestinian living with no rights, I don't know if people can understand what it's like to have no rights, especially for American people listeners who are used to being free. And for Palestinians, they could shoot us. Israelis would have no reason to go to trial for shooting a Palestinian because we have no rights living there. Like that student Isaac that was shot by the soldier. The soldier didn't go to trial. He didn't suffer any consequences just because the person he killed was Palestinian and Palestinians have no rights. I know that was a long explanation, but I think there's a lot of confusion with that. So The bottom line is our country just doesn't exist anymore. It just got occupied by Israel. So the state of Israel convinced the world that they are trying to establish a Jewish state. And a lot of people sympathize with that because people want the Jews to have a land The problem with this is they want a state of all Jews. If you're not Jewish, you have no rights there. You don't have the right to live, you don't have the rights to survive, and you don't have the right to vote or do anything.
0: Well, it seems as though the, the Israeli government tapped into something within America that pretty much ensured its survival for the long term, and that is really the evangelical understanding of the reestablishment of the Jewish culture in a specific place called Israel that fulfills biblical prophecy. It's like a two-stage fulfillment. You even hear that at times amongst Latter-day Saints, and how do you respond to that when you hear that that sort of explication of Scripture?
2: Yeah, I think that is that is the main problem. Like I think I had a friend of mine who was teaching young women one day and she asked her young women class what does it mean to gather Israel and this 14-year-old girl raised her hand and she said it means to kill all the Palestinians. So apparently we're completely confusing the gathering of Israel with what the state of Israel is. The gathering of Israel has nothing to do with the gathering of the Jews to Palestine. That's not fulfilling the promises. I think President Nelson has said it over and over. The gathering of Israel is bringing all of God's children into the gospel, into making covenants with God. And I think we forget that the children of Israel are the covenant people of the Lord. Those are the people that make covenants with God. Those are not the Jews. They're not the Palestinians either. The people that make covenants with God are people that enter the water's baptism and the holy temple and make covenants with God. And I think that's where the misunderstanding comes, is the name The Jews called the land Israel because they wanted to gather the sympathies of the world and to make people think that, oh, this is the gathering, but it's not. I think the gathering is a completely different thing. And I'm honored to be of the house of Israel. And I think everybody that makes covenants with God becomes part of this gathering and becomes of the house of Israel. I wish that people would understand that As members of the church, we do need to stand against injustices. It doesn't matter who does the injustice, who commits these war crimes, and who is racist or whatever. We need to stand against that. We're all children of God, and he loves everybody, and he wants to gather us into his kingdom.
0: Well, and so much of this is tied to a political ideology and it's ironic to me because if you look at the European example of a country that, you know, gets walled off in, in like, for instance, when Russia took over a bunch of the Eastern Bloc countries and then they set up the wall in Berlin, for instance, we're very against that sort of exclusionary society in that respect when it's against our enemy. But when it's with our ally, it's like, oh, no big deal. And the same thing goes for the political system. It's a highly socialistic system in Israel. And yet the conservatives here, you know, unquestioningly support that government and that system. It's just so ironic to me that there's just very little investigation of how that that nation state operates in its sphere over in the Middle East.
2: Yeah, it's unbelievable that you would have the U.S., I don't know why people allow this. Like the U.S. funded the entire separation wall mostly, because Israel doesn't have any resources. The U.S. fund all the weapons. They give them everything. If you think, why would a country support something creating a wall around cities? Like Bethlehem has a wall around it, a 25-foot concrete wall. We have a city called Kalkilia that has a wall around it in all directions. You can only exit the city through one road has a 25-foot concrete wall completely supported by the U.S., created around these cities. And then if you think of all the weapons that are used to kill civilians over there, like people in Gaza, 300,000 homes that were gone, completely wiped out. I have a friend of mine, the only Christian family in Gaza, their house was bombed and her uncle lost his life and her cousin lost all his limbs. They were just blown completely apart for no reason. They're Christians. Like, they're not terrorists. They have done nothing. It's, it's unbelievable that the world would stand by and allow this to happen just because the person doing it is you know, Israel, and we support Israel. We can't possibly not support what they're doing. So, I don't know. It's strange.
1: I'd like to, Aver, an answer to your question, how can this be? By quoting from your book, your quote of Mark Twain, who said, If you don't listen to the news, you are uninformed. If you do listen to the news, you are misinformed. So apparently Mark Twain knew about fake news a long time ago. Yes, very true. (laughs) You know, Sahar, the other thing that occurs to me when it comes to what's in a name, you know, we've we've been talking about Israel-Palestine itself. I, I met a woman, oh, a week or two ago, an evangelical Christian American woman who told me that the Romans gave the name... Palestine to the place you come from, because the Philistines were the Jews' worst enemies, or something like that. Huh. And I thought, that is so interesting that you think that, because, because I've read Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, and he talks about Palestine, right? This is something like 2,500 years ago,
0: Yeah. right?
1: And then Zionism, the state of Israel today is a secular state, right? That many of the Jews are not religious Jews, right? They're Jewish people, but they're not religious Jews. And that there's this idea of Zionism, which it was very uncomfortable when I was studying Arabic in Jordan. We had a lesson in church, Sunday school, right, on Zion, building Zion. The Arab Christians, the Arab Latter-day Saints with me were uh, very uncomfortable about this idea of talking about Zion. Can you distinguish between Zion and Zionism?
2: Again, the choice of names is, is weird. To us, we consider anyone who blindly likes the Jews and doesn't like anybody else, we consider them a Zionist. Zionism is kind of a bad thing for a lot of Palestinians, but in the church, Zion is is a place. So it's a place of peace and tranquility. And I feel that that's part of Satan's plan to kind of distort things because yeah, there's a lot of things that the world interpretation of these things could be bad, but the real interpretation or what God intended, like the name Israel, you know, is a great name. Let God prevail. And President Nelson talks about that, but the state of Israel, what the people are doing there are destroying that name. And similarly, the word Zion is a great place, is a great thing, great concept. But when you talk about Zionism and what people are doing with that, it's unbelievable. I have a lot of people that I consider friends. At the same time, they're Zionists. And it's really hard when you start talking to someone who has that mentality to help them understand why they're wrong. (laughs) It's really strange because on the one side you say, okay, Jews used to live there at some point, right? So they have the right to go back. But the side of that is you're coming back, taking land of people that have been there. Like I did my DNA test. I'm 99.9% from that region. I have never moved. My family's been there forever, right? No Jew ever in Palestine could say that. Now, the key issue that people sometimes don't see with what's going on there is half of our people are refugees. So there's about five, six million Palestinian refugees out there. Now they have no right to go back to live in Palestine. I have uncles and aunts and cousins that have no right to ever go back to Palestine. Now they're like me, they've been there, that's their country, they've been there for generations. So on that one side, You would think that's not fair for Palestinians to not be able to go back to their home country. Contrast that with how racist the state is, is any Jew, now they don't have to show any connection to Palestine, as long as they can show that by lineage they have some sort of Jewish ancestor, they automatically get Israeli citizenship and they can come home to Palestine. And if they want, they can even take my house and live in it. And I would have no right because I don't have the right to own property in Palestine. I'm not a citizen of Israel. I have no right. So they can come and say, I want your house. And they can take it. And they can get citizenship. And that's just so unfair and so outrageously (laughs) weird.
1: And thank goodness not every Jew who is living in Palestine is looking to take away somebody's house. But the problem is that those who are, nobody's going to stop them. Yeah, exactly. If you have a Zionist who wants to take your house, the state is not going to stop him.
2: Yeah. A lot of times when I kind of say some things against the state of Israel, a lot of people think, oh, all Jews or all Israelis are bad. And that's not true. The problem is, A lot of the Israeli Jews have no clue, have no idea what's going on. And that goes back to the media. Their media brainwashes them. I mean, really, they think that we're all trying to kill them. They think we're all bad. I have a really close Israeli friend. When I was telling her, oh, I can't go to Jerusalem, she's like, why? You know, what's wrong? Why are you not able to enter Jerusalem? (laughs) I mean, you were born in Jerusalem. Why? What prevents you? And I said, well, your state does. Your soldiers prevent me so... They don't know. They know nothing. They have no clue what's happening. A lot of the Jews that came from Europe in 1948 and lived in Palestinian homes, they didn't know that these homes had people in them that were driven out or killed. Their state told them, oh, these are just empty houses and people have left. And they didn't question, they just lived there. And so it's a lot of facts that get hidden. And so people don't know the truth.
1: So you have the media playing both sides off of each other. Yes. This is divide and conquer, right? Yep. I want to say for for the listener who may not think this is possible, I stopped looking at the media seven years ago. If there's something going on, I don't know about it unless somebody told me. And by the way, people will tell you. Yes. (laughs) But to be focused on the media day in, day out is to look at the world through a distorted lens riley mentioned berlin the wall in berlin i've seen the wall and you know these walls you speak of in in your homeland with my own eyes uh, you know live and in person riley have you seen pictures of these walls
0: no but I, i do know what they look like and i i was in berlin when the wall came down and and witnessed that kind of elation and that you know i was there in 1989 and then i went back again in 1998 and walls are destructive they're inherently divisive whether it's there or here in America, we separate each other with walls, with labels. I've just got my hat delivered that says, Jesus era un migrante. And yep. Which being translated means, Jesus, Jesus is an was immigrant, an immigrant.
2: immigrant. Yeah, right? Yes.
0: Yeah. And so I'm wearing this hat just kind of in solidarity with people because my dad was an immigrant, you know and i I feel a solidarity with everyone in that sense, because you know everyone's a, a, trying to escape persecution that gets labeled with these you know refugee or, or immigrant labels, and, and then they throw the the pejorative illegal in front of it, and it makes it even worse you know and how do you feel about people that find themselves in these circumstances as a result of your experiences?
2: It's really sad, and I feel that the wall was really bad for my country because once you separate people, once they stop talking to each other and you have Palestinians where the media is telling them bad things about the Israelis and you have the Israelis where their media is telling them bad things about the Palestinians, it makes hate grow. There is no way to establish peace when you have two sides that just completely think the other side, the person on the other side of the wall is this monster and that you can't talk to them. You have to bring people together. And I think sometimes even if we don't have physical walls between us, we create our own walls. I see that in the U.S. a lot, like with me even. People are like, well, she's a Palestinian, right? She's a terrorist. They label you automatically or, you know, you're a foreigner or you're not like me, you're different, so I don't want to talk to you. And these labels that we put on people are what separates us. They don't help us get to know each other. And once you get to know the other side, everybody is a child of God. When I studied in Turkey, initially when I looked at Turkish people, I mean, they wouldn't speak to me. They never smiled. <laughs> you would walk in the street and they would just look at you and or avoid you or not. And I thought they were horrible people. <laughs> I said, you know, they must be rude or whatever. But once I learned their language and was able to actually speak to them, oh my, they're funny, they're friendly, they're kind, they're loving. But sometimes, you know, we have to learn each other's language. We have to be able to talk to each other before we really know who the other person is and what they're like. I think the solution to any conflict is bringing people together and helping them get to know the other side.
1: We talked about the the wall in Berlin. It reminded me of the apartheid system of South Africa. There's another one that we don't look favorably upon and yet you find people on both sides divided by political ideology. We see this kind of division at home. You don't have to go anywhere. The other thing that, that I remember from my experience studying in Jordan is all the Palestinians living in Jordan who are without a country, you know, who who you ask them if they're Jordanian, they say, no, I'm Palestinian, but they've always lived in Jordan. They cannot go home. I'm reminded of uh, the, the mess that Venezuela is today, the country where I grew up. And my father came here from Venezuela and couldn't go back because his passport expired and they're not giving anybody passports. That's something that every Palestinian deals with every day of her life, yes. is to not even have a passport. But I want to transition this conversation into another form of identity, right? the one that you mentioned already, that is our identity as children of God. Maybe we're American, maybe we're Palestinian, maybe we're Jews, maybe we're Muslims, maybe we're Christians, whether Greek Orthodox or Latter-day Saint, but we're all children of God. Yes. Tell us about your experience of coming to that realization, that and, and the challenge that it is to live the teaching of our Savior, to love our enemies.
2: I struggled with that just because, like I said, when when you're a Palestinian and you live in the state of Israel and you don't have a nationality, I, I came. The first time I came to the U.S., the the immigration officer asked my nationality, and I didn't know what to tell him because, you know, when I introduce myself, I tell people I'm Palestinian, but there's no country called Palestine. You look at a map, you don't see Palestine anymore unless you go to a map. Back in 1940, you'll see Palestine, but now you see Israel, and I'm not Israeli. You fill out an online application, you want to select your nationality, it doesn't exist. What do you select? It's, it's strange. I've always kind of felt insecure living in Palestine because, like I said, the Israelis could come take my house. I don't have the right to be there. We couldn't raise our flag. Every time we would raise our flag, they would come and make us take it down and burn it. I just felt I wanted that place. I wanted a place that I could belong in and I would feel welcome in and that I would have this identity. And when I would go to the July 4th celebrations in the US, I kind of wanted to grab people and ask them, what does it feel like to have a country? Because I don't know, like, what does this feeling feel like? to be celebrating independence of a country and to be, you know, raising your flags. And I would try sometimes to close my eyes and imagine, okay, what if those flags were Palestinian? What would that feel like? And I I just fail. I just don't know what it's like because I didn't have one in my entire lifetime. But when I learned about my identity as a daughter of God, when I learned the gospel even though I grew up Christian, that wasn't emphasized a lot. So it wasn't until I investigated and joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that I came to really understand our identity as a daughter and son of God. And it made a difference to me because I knew that all of a sudden I was a daughter of this heavenly king who was just and merciful and kind. And I, in a way, I had a nationality. I didn't need this silly paper passport. To prove that identity, I knew who I was. I knew that my king was powerful and he was in charge and he was not only my king, but he was my father. It just made a difference to me. And right now, I'm not too worried about having a nationality. I will at some point have an American citizenship, but for now, I'll live with that thought.
1: That's what my dad did. He became an American citizen so he could get a passport so he could go home. Yeah,
2: exactly. And see, sadly, people tell me, well, once you have an American passport, you go back to Palestine, you can go to Jerusalem, right? I say, no, that's the thing. They still consider me Palestinian, and I would still be treated as a Palestinian, even though I would have an American passport at that point.
0: Oh goodness! At least my dad gets to go home. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sahara, it seems like you've you've sort of adopted the same ethic that President Nelson recently described on a social media post, where you know he described this exact thing about identity. He said, you know, there's only a few identities that really matter at all. Right at the top of that is child of God. Anything that tries to supplant that identity is a false identity and then just below that he put disciple of christ and of course that's a specific identity related to to a follower of jesus christ but when you take as your primary identity child of god and you start seeing through that lens every other child of god how does that change you And you mentioned this was the first time you recognized this as your primary identity was joining the church. How did that change how you saw others?
2: Yeah. So you also mentioned loving my enemies. So I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that and maybe link that in. But like I said, when I was 16, and saw that student die in front of me. I had this hate for the Israelis and I actually let that hate grow. You know, hate is a very strong feeling and it actually destroys you. It wasn't fun because I was in a dark place and I I had this anger and this hate towards them. This was in 1990, I think, or something, but I joined the church. I had gone to BYU and I joined the church and came back home to Palestine. And then I found these same soldiers trying to prevent me from worshiping God and going to church. And week after week, you know, I would have to sneak in and get shot at and trying to get to church. I remember this one day, it was 1997, and I was trying to cross the checkpoint to get to church. And this soldier, who was 19 years old, he had blonde hair. It was obvious that he wasn't a local. I mean, he was a foreigner. He came to my land, you know, settler, probably a Zionist, like we said. But he told me that I wasn't allowed into Jerusalem, and I was angry. I was so angry, and I was going to yell at him, and I looked at him, and I was about to complain that he had no right to do this, when all of a sudden I heard the Savior's words, love your enemies. And it kind of shocked me, because I knew that those words were not just coming out of thin air. I knew that God was telling me that I needed to love them. And I did not know how. I did not know how to get rid of that hate and that anger and that hurt from years where I've seen them beat people. I've seen them arrest my brother-in-law multiple times and torture him in jail. And I've seen them do all sorts of things to my people and prevent me from going to church. My heart could not do it. It didn't know how. And I was preparing to go to the temple at the time. And I'm like, well, the Savior is giving me a commandment and I can't do it. So I don't know what to do with this. So I struggled, and it took days of thinking and just wondering what to do until one day I ran into a scripture in Moroni 748, where Mormon says, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that you will be filled with this love. And I realized that charity is actually a gift, that we can pray for help. The Savior knows how to love. Heavenly Father knows how to love all people, and they can teach us. We're their children, right? They know us and they know how to soften our hearts. And so I started to pray and fast and pray and fast. And It took months. It wasn't a very easy thing. But it was almost a year later where I was crossing the checkpoint or trying to cross the checkpoint because they never allowed me through. But I tried anyway. I got to a soldier and he again told me to turn around. And I was upset and I was going to yell at him. And I looked at him. And all of a sudden, I was just overwhelmed with this feeling of love towards the person standing in front of me. And I saw him as a child of God. He wasn't the enemy anymore. In my mind, somehow, I managed to isolate the act that people do from the fact that they're children of God, because everybody is. And a lot of people, when I share this, they say, well, you're amazing because you can love your enemies. And I say, no because I couldn't. I really couldn't. It's Him. Heavenly Father just knows how to soften our hearts. And so if there's someone in your life that you're struggling to forgive and love, He can show you how. He can teach us. He can heal us.
1: You know, Sahara, I've had the experience myself, although I have not been through what you've been through and had to deal with what you've had to deal with in my own challenges and in my own weakness. I've had the experience of, it occurred to me just as it did to you to, I didn't read the scripture. That would have helped. I didn't run into that one, but it occurred to me that I could ask God to borrow strength in Christ where I lacked strength, you know? So while I'm building my own strength, right, I could borrow that strength that I lacked from God by asking through Christ. And so that's what I did. And I still didn't have my own strength to get through the, the difficulty that I was facing. But with that borrowed strength, I could. Yeah. That reminds me of something from your book. You know, you mentioned, you know, we've been told if we have faith, we can move mountains. But we also know that God doesn't always answer our prayers in the way that we expect him to. Right. Will you share your story around moving mountains or moving yourself? Because we, we also have the expression, if the mountain doesn't come to you, You go to the mountain, right? Yes,
2: correct. (laughs) Sometimes when I read the scripture that says, if you have faith, you can move mountains. I feel my faith obviously doesn't exist because I can't even move a pen from one place to the other. But yeah, I've come to realize that mountains don't necessarily move the way we want them to. And, you know, I prayed in my life for a lot of things. And one thing that I know for sure is God always listens. And I think sometimes we want him to answer the way we want our prayers answered. When my brother-in-law was diagnosed with cancer, I thought I had so much faith and I prayed with all my heart that he would be healed. And Heavenly Father told me that he would die. I couldn't understand why that wasn't granted, but I've come to realize that God answers prayers in his way and his understanding is very different from our understanding. I've come to realize that sometimes when you have a mountain and you're praying for that mountain to move and it doesn't, then you start climbing. We sometimes need to develop the strength and faith. And that's why Heavenly Father sometimes allows the mountains to stay in our path, because the only way back to Him is through our climbing the mountains and going through trials. Life is not meant to be smooth and easy and nice. We're supposed to struggle. Life is just supposed to be hard. We just have to pray for faith and strength to go through and climb those mountains and go through our trials. When I got home from my mission, I couldn't find work for nine months and I prayed and prayed and fasted and nothing happened. Then I finally was offered a job as a secretary in New York. I do not like New York. I did not want to be a secretary because I had a PhD and I didn't want to work as a secretary, but I said, I'll do this, you know, it's a job. And you gave me this job. I went to take a test, a secretary test, and I failed. And I couldn't understand how someone with a PhD would fail a secretary test, but apparently it's possible. But later on, the job at BYU-Idaho became possible. I look back at this and say, I am so glad God didn't answer the pra- my prayer the way I wanted him to answer my prayer, because my prayer involved simple jobs in Palestine, involved me getting this job as a secretary. And when that didn't work out, I got frustrated and angry. I was <laughs> like, well, God, well, you know, I went on a mission. I was faithful. You're not providing. You're not helping me. And I wanted my answer right then, but Heavenly Father wanted this job to become available and wanted me to work here. And he had a way more wonderful plan for me than I had for myself. So sometimes we just have to trust that him not answering doesn't necessarily mean that he's not going to grant us something more amazing than what we ever imagined.
1: Sahar, I, I can understand how you could think, why could a PhD, how could a PhD fail at secretary <laughs> test? But listen, back to this immigrant point. I know you're not taking my job, Sahar, because I can't do math. <laughs> right. Welcome. You can have it. Yeah. Thank you.
0: I love how you frame this idea of, you know, moving a mountain as a matter of faith. And, and really the thing that we have control over is ourselves, you know, And maybe it's just a shift in perspective. Like if you want the mountain to be over there, if you move yourself to this point, all of a sudden it's on your right instead of on your left. And so that shift in perspective is, I think, closely related to something we reference often, which is that LDS Bible Dictionary definition of repentance, which is a fresh view about God, man, and the world. So many times that fresh view or that perspective comes from just acting upon our own agency, and doing the best we can with what we're dealt. You know, on this program, we frequently offer an alternative to the prosperity gospel. I think it was mentioned in in a conference or two ago, it was called the heaven, the cosmic vending machine, you know, <laughs> where you put in a quarter and out comes the blessing, you know. Our actions typically have to do with just an exercise of agency and the perspective that comes from changing that. And I love how you've used that example to, to point out that God just wants us to act and do the best we can with what, with what hand we're dealt. And so many times the blessing results from just acting. Yes.
1: It occurs to me that this conversation is about distinctions. And many of the conversations we have are, right? It's about distinguishing between Palestinian and terrorist, between Israel and Israelite, between Zion and Zionism between USA and US government, right? I met so many Arabs living in an Arab country, you know, I was surrounded by Arabs, of course, in Jordan, but I met so many people who I talked to who really did not like my government, but they had nothing against me. Yeah. They loved America. They loved even the culture that maybe I don't even love, but they, but they did not like my government and they could distinguish. We have to make these distinctions.
2: Yes, very true.
0: Sahar, how do you see yourself as a messenger of peace in the world with your background and understanding the things you've experienced? And what do you think the most effective way for members of the church, or, or maybe just Christians at large, would be to spread the peace of Christ? I mean, this is, this is the core message of Christ, is to have peace, maybe not as the world has peace, but a different type of peace. And how do you, how do you see Christians participating in the world to spread the peace of Christ?
2: I feel that we need to follow the Savior. And, you know, when I was growing up in Palestine, I lived in a place that didn't really have physical peace. You know, we grew up listening to gunshots all the time. And my friend actually would sometimes think, you know, she was scared when she heard gunshots or whatever. And I actually don't think twice about it. It's so normal to me living there, seeing gunshots and smelling tear gas was normal to me. And I actually didn't think that peace was possible. As we're preparing to celebrate Christmas, you know, the angels told the shepherds peace on earth. And I often wondered, what is this peace and why is the Savior called the Prince of Peace? Because I personally couldn't understand and didn't really think that peace is possible. But when I learned about the gospel and got to know my Savior better, I realized that peace is possible. When I was investigating the church, I started to have this feeling of peace. And I actually thought, well, I'm in a peaceful place. I live in Provo, Utah, so that's probably why I feel peace. But I come to realize that that peace comes from the Savior. As you follow the Prince of Peace, you actually have peace in your life. And it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter if you live in a war zone or whatever trials or difficulties are going on in your life. That personal peace or that feeling can be in your heart forever. Just as an experience regarding that, you know, there was a time years ago where Israeli helicopters were bombing areas in my town. And they must have hit a power cord, so then we had no electricity, and they hit a phone cable or something, and we had no phone connections. I have like 2,000 relatives in Besahore, and I was really worried, especially about my sister who was living in that area of town that was being bombed. And so we went up to the roof. My family was trying to see which houses were being bombed so that we can make sure that my sister was okay. And I was scared and I took a flashlight and went down from the roof to my bedroom and I knelt in the darkness and I prayed. And at that time, I felt the most amazing peace I've ever felt. The bombing didn't stop and the electricity didn't come back on, but I was able to feel that everything was gonna be okay. And I think the savior sends us the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, that can help us have that comfort even though things could be hard and difficult. And if you remember the story of Peter on the water, there was a storm going on, but the Savior didn't calm the storm to cause Peter's fear to go away. But instead, he reached and lifted Peter up as he started to sink. He strengthens us through our trials. He doesn't always make our trials go away. He doesn't move our mountains for us. Sometimes he does, but more often he doesn't. And he just lifts us and comforts us and strengthens us and helps us go through that. As Christians and as followers of the Savior, I think it's our job to help people be pointed or turned towards the Savior. There's so many conflicts going on in the world and so many contentions and so much hate and so much anger and injustices. And I think he's the answer. I think the Savior who's the Prince of Peace is the answer to all of this. Because once you start following the Savior, you'll have that peace in your life. And once you start following the Savior, He'll teach you to love. He'll teach you to forgive and let go of all these problems and, and hate and things that may be going on in your life. And He'll bring people together because we're all Heavenly Father's children. We're all brothers and sisters. And I think once we start to follow the Savior, we'll come closer to one another and be able to find that peace and establish that peace everywhere
0: Amin to yep that's beautiful sahar thanks for sharing that experience and yeah. i i get the sense that jesus christ can be a missing link between cultures between people that are divided you know everyone may not agree on whether they need to worship christ but everyone can see the attributes of Christ that they want to emulate that they look up to and would like to see spread throughout the world if you ask a muslim they have a high opinion of jesus christ if you ask a jew they may not believe he was the messiah but they believe in his principles and they believe that he you know was a great rabbi of the time you know jesus christ was very much a, a mystic and, and taught deep truths which i think would connect with anyone west east and so you ask these differing cultures about Jesus, and the core messages he taught are things that all of us can get on board with. Yeah. If we stick to that core message of Jesus Christ, I believe that it will bring the world together. Well, Sahara, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. And we always like to give our guests the opportunity to, to give a last word, or if there's anything you wanted to say that you didn't get the chance to, now's your, now's your time.
2: I think I'd like to bear my testimony in Arabic, if that's okay.
0: We would love that. Please do.
2: أنا بعرف إنه إحنا أولاد وبنات الله نعرف بعرف إنه يسوع المسيح بحبنا بعرف إنه مات واجا على الأرض عشاننا وضحى بحياته عشاننا بعرف إنه كتاب مورمون هو كلمة الله وإنه عنا نبي اليوم حي اسمه رسل أمنالسن بطلب من الجميع إنه ينضموا للكنيسة ويقبلوا يسوع المسيح ويوجدوا السلام الموجود على الأرض أقول هاي الأشياء باسم يسوع المسيح آمين
0: آمين mm. آمين oh, That was awesome Thank you Sahar
2: That was a testimony not a prayer
0: I was agreeing so be
1: it <laughs> Amen <laughs> I agree آمين ثم آمين So I, I recommend uh, Sahar's book to the listener who wants to know more about her story There's more and is there anywhere where we can find... I know there. you've given... I've been to firesides, at least one fireside where you spoke. I know there's stuff on YouTube. Yeah. People can check out on YouTube too, right? And do you have a site or social media presence where interested people can follow you?
2: I have a blog, but I stopped... I'm not very active on my blog, but people can go to my blog. And it's at blogspot.com. But my book you can find in Desert Book, you could find online and if you just google my name a lot of my talks will come up if you want to listen to any of my talks i mean if you just google my name my spelling of my name is really hard but hopefully you can figure that out we'll
0: put it in the show description we'll put it in
2: awesome but yeah if you search my name things will come up so you can listen more
1: thank you so much for being with us for latter-day contemplation i'm christopher hurtado and i'm riley risto
2: thank you